Welcome to Interchange. I'm Doug Storm. Today's show is The New Cosmology, or Upbeat in the Anthropocene. By the time I got your letter, I lost my mind. I was tripping when you get Our opening song is The Voyager by Jenny Lewis, the title track to her 2014 album. Lewis said she wrote the album while struggling with a two-year bout of insomnia. Sleeplessness prompted her to watch a lot of late-night boxing and Cosmos, the television series by Carl Sagan, which became inspiration for the album. Today's show is kin to last week's about finding beauty and use in edible plants we call weeds. But instead of seeing the human as capable of flourishing in concert with the natural, in this story, humanity sings itself beyond limitation. But perhaps we should heed Nietzsche. Quote, In some remote corner of the universe that is poured out in countless flickering solar systems, there once was a star on which clever animals invented knowledge. That was the most arrogant and most untruthful moment in world history. Yet indeed, only a moment. After nature had taken a few breaths, the star froze over and the clever animals had to die." Unquote. Lisa Sedaris joins us in the studio to talk about the ways of scientism and its storytellers as distinguished from science, which is method more than narrative, and uncovering, a way of unraveling tales. Sedaris is Associate Professor of Religious Studies at Indiana University and author of Consecrating Science, Wonder, Knowledge, and the Natural World published this year by the University of California Press. Let's begin with the great scientist Werner von Braun, who was the leading figure in the development of rocket technology in Germany, and the father of rocket technology and space science in the United States. He was also a Nazi and one of thousands of German scientists that were brought to the U.S. as a kind of spoil of war, the scientific future. Since the early beginnings, there's always been men and women who felt a burning desire to know what was under the rock or beyond the hills or across the oceans. And this restless breed now wants to know what makes an atom work or what is the geological history of the moon to what process does life reproduce itself. But also, there would not be a single great accomplishment in the history of mankind without faith. Again, that was Werner von Braun in a talk given at Taylor University in 1972. Incidentally, Taylor is a private evangelical Christian college in Upland, Indiana. It was founded in 1846 and is one of America's oldest evangelical Christian colleges. This is Doug Storm. It's Interchange. Welcome, Lisa Sedaris. Thank you for having me. Lisa, you've been here before. I have. We had uh, a show with you on the Deer Call. That seems like forever ago. It wasn't that long ago, was it? 
No, we won't talk about it. <laughs> <laughs> we don't have to talk about it. You it can was listen about, to it. I think it was about four years ago. Is it that long ago? Based on oh, when, it, when the new deer call was mm. proposed. But that's a, that let's seems, change the subject. It's a, it's a different world. Yeah. Uh, and we've also talked about Rachel Carson on the Custom House, but I've used that show a couple of times to play re- on repeat for Interchange. It's one of my favorites. Yeah, that was a good one. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, uh, I also really like that song, The Voyager, because it's sort of uh, that sense of... Um, all of us having sort of a spirit to want to one escape, but find ourselves significant in a world uh, that is confusing. Um, how do we uh, think of ourselves as anything more than a speck? Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. Star travel, space, the idea that we can conquer vast areas, uh, all in the comfy confines of a spaceship is interesting as well. But um, she says, if you want to get to heaven, you got to get out of this world. So there's a lot in that song that kind of works really well with the show today, the, the idea of a metaphysic within this, this particular conception of science. Um, and Von Braun seemed to want to get out of this world also, right? Uh, yeah. Here's another quote from him. The importance of the space program is not surpassing the Soviets in space. The importance is to build a bridge to the stars so that when the sun dies, humanity will not die. The sun is a star that's burning up, and when it finally burns up, there will be no Earth, no Mars, no Jupiter. Uh, so uh, clearly, that's part of this as well. Um, so your book, uh, your new book, is Consecrating Science, Wonder, Knowledge, and the Natural World. And let's kind of just unpack that, uh, consecrating science. What do you mean by that? Well, consecrating science, the term consecrated science actually was one that I borrowed from someone else who <laughs> uses it more approvingly than I do. Ah. It's a, a scholar, Bron Taylor, um, talks about sort of consecrated scientific narratives, but I use the term and the title of my book as something that I disagree with. So consecrated science is science that is sort of in all of itself, mm. um, not not consecrated, you know, to the good or in the service of something else like God or nature, but a kind of science that, that wonders at itself and sort of perpetuates itself um, in its own kind of idolization of itself, so in a kind of vicious cycle that science produces wonder, that produces science, that produces right, wonder, right. and we wonder at this complete knowledge that we're trying to cultivate. Hmm. Kind of a, a narcissist science. Well, <laughs> some of the people involved in it are sort of <laughs> have some of those tendencies. Well, so say. consecrating is a, is a word we use for sac. I'm looking for a place. Yeah, I mean to sort of to to make science itself sacred. Sacred, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. And um, so, you, as you said, you're not so keen on that. Um, but the the book title itself it does it, it does somewhat seem like it's okay, right? So we go from consecrating science to wonder, knowledge, and the natural world. It all sounds fine, right? Wonder mm. and knowledge and and the natural world. And um, so, what's what is wrong with the idea? Uh, you did already say that science thinking of itself and thinking of its own strengths and wonder, there is something outside of it that's missing. Science needs to do something else so as to not be so internal, right? So interior. Right. Well, part of it is, for me, I've been I've been looking at wonder for a long time, which was part of my interest in Rachel Carson. We've, we've talked about that. So, I mean, the question, I think, with wonder is what what is one wondering at? So when people say, for example, well, look, you know, even Richard Dawkins has wonder. So, you know, as if to suggest that he has a kind of spiritual Mm -hmm. side to him, something he vehemently, you know, rejects. But (laughs) uh, yeah, of course he has wonder. He has wonder at, you know, the human mind Mm -hmm. and the sort of complete 
body of knowledge, the sort of progress in science that, that scientists are creating. And so that kind of wonder kind of becomes internalized towards the scientist, him or herself, and, and the mind as being the, the sort of ultimate object of wonder, mm-hmm. so that it, it, it competes with other forms of wonder, wonder at God, wonder at um, nature, mm-hmm. and, and is, is sort of um, in putting itself into that competition is always the supreme form of wonder. So if you're not wondering at science, you're experiencing kind of false wonder mm-hmm. on this account. And it finds, uh, it finds a way generally to denigrate other, other knowledge, other, other wonder. Right. And so it's also a kind of uh, supreme scientific knowledge as opposed to other ways of knowing the world through mm-hmm. other disciplines or through direct experience or something like mm-hmm. that. Well, um, we make a lot of comments on this show in particular about how we are unable to get out of the system we're in, right? Thinking outside of the self is mm-hmm. impossible generally. You, thinking about the mind is is a strange concept in itself, right? Thinking about the thinking, about the thinking, about the thinking. <laughs> it just kind of gets And in an evolutionary it. context, it gets particularly, yeah, yeah. you know, this, this argument sort of begins to fall apart mm-hmm. because the mind itself is an evolved organ, right? So it, mm-hmm. it's not necessarily um, designed to, to contemplate and understand sort mm-hmm. of the ultimate you know, questions or to have total knowledge. Now, this is, um, as we just heard, uh, Werner von Braun, this is not new. Obviously, the idea of uh, conquering nature is partly the, I don't know what, what in the Enlightenment split in a sense, right? Mm. Uh, uh, how man can conquer hum- humankind, but men are the ones saying this generally, uh, I would think. Um, well, <laughs> von Braun certainly, he does say woman once, oh, I think, well. but the rest of it's very manly. Yeah. <laughs> right. um, but, so, but it seems like there's a doubling down now, right? And uh, the, there's a sense, and I think uh, you, you mentioned this before we started the show, that, that a lot of what's happening now seems to be a, uh, a response to 9-11. Well, not I mean, not so much the particular people I'm focusing on, although that's true of Dawkins, mm-hmm. certainly, and, and sort of what, you know, people call the new atheists. Mm-hmm. But um, but I think the idea that 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 religion is um, primitive, that it's a kind of failed attempt at science um, mm-hmm. and that it will be superseded by science as we kind of reclaim that enlightenment project which mm-hmm. is certainly also something that E.O. Wilson explicitly says he's doing is mm-hmm. reclaiming the enlightenment and the sort of project that was abandoned by the logical positivists because they didn't understand the mm-hmm. mind or the brain and so once we can sort of you know complete the picture then we will know everything mm-hmm. religion then is fundamentally irrational in that sort of picture mm-hmm. now E.O. Wilson is the scientist I know best from his work on ants uh, I assume he's done much more much more than that Right. So, and the the part of his work that I take up in the book is consilience, which mm-hmm. is, um, I mean, uh, some of his other works are in there too, but primarily consilience, which is a, an attempt, I mean, ostensibly to sort of unite the disciplines into a kind of complete picture of knowledge. Um, but in practice, it often looks like science sort of colonizing the humanities, mm-hmm. taking over territory that um, is currently not being explained well by other disciplines and showing how science can can do that better. Mm. So, And that's sort of at the heart of some of these narratives that I'm studying, whether they call it consilience or not, um, because there are claims to a kind of interdisciplinarity that I think is, is really science-based and mm-hmm. science-heavy, um, and, and also just that sense that a, a sort of epic story will have that complete knowledge, you know, at the center of it. 
Well, we'll take a look at the epic story when we return. Uh, We'll take a break right now. Uh, We'll listen to Heretics by Andrew Bird off his 2007 album Armchair Apocrypha. Stay with us for more with Lisa Sedaris on the new cosmology and epic science when Interchange returns. WFHB comes from the Uptown Cafe, established in 1976. Located at 102 East Kirkwood Avenue, serving breakfast, lunch, and dinner, as well as wine, beer, spirits, and cocktails. More information is available online at the-uptowncafe.com. And support for WFHB also comes from Limestone Post, an online culture and lifestyle magazine for Bloomington and beyond. You can explore articles, photo essays, and videos on the arts, outdoors, local history, community events, and all the topics that make Bloomington such a great place to live. Limestone Post. Writers with a voice. Photographers with a vision. Online at limestonepost.com. Welcome back to Interchange. Again, that was Andrew Bird with Heretics. Today, we've got Lisa Sedaris in the studio talking about her new book, Consecrating Science, Wonder, Knowledge, and the Natural World. It's published by the University of California Press. Now, we're going to give Von Braun, Werner Von Braun, one more chance or multiple chances through the rest of the show. But here, he's going to grace us again. Remember, this is a talk given at Taylor University in Upland, Indiana, one of America's oldest evangelical Christian colleges. This was 1972. Why are we flying to the moon? What's our purpose? What is the essential justification of the exploration of space? The answer, I'm convinced, lies rooted not in whimsy, 
but in the nature of man. Let me give you my personal view. Man, as a biological species, is really a rather anomalous animal, whereas all other animals establish a place for themselves in nature's highly cooperative and competitive ecological system. Man has established his place in nature by altering his natural environment through such actions as practice in agriculture, rather than eating the national fruits of the trees and the plants, and clearing forests to build cities. Whereas all other living beings seem to find their places in the natural order and fulfill their role in life with a kind of calm acceptance, man clearly exhibits confusion. Why the anxiety? Why the storm and stress? Man really seems to be the only living thing uncertain of his role in the universe. And in his uncertainty, he has been calling since time immemorial upon the stars and the heavens for salvation and for answers to his eternal questions, who am I and why am I here? Wherever he fought, he invoked the stars for help. Wherever he loved, he invoked the moon. And all great religions hold that eternal life and heaven as man's reward for his good deeds here on earth. Again, that was Werner von Braun talking about the stars and heaven and men going to space and rockets. Um, the, uh, there are a lot of terms in there that, that um, you know, just, again, seem almost seem whimsical themselves. See, he says men doesn't men to go to space for whimsy or aren't interested in discovery for whimsy. It's a it's a natural quality of the human to do these things. Yeah, this is um this is this is something you hear a lot in these epic stories that I've been writing about that you know humans don't know where they fit into nature. Um you know other animals it's written into their DNA. They know what they're supposed to do. Um with calm acceptance. Right, with, that's an interesting way of putting it. Yeah, but we're confused. Um, but we don't seem to be confused about the idea that we do have a role in the universe, which is kind of an interesting Very important one. claim. And mm-hmm. so these stories that I'm writing about um, are about trying to figure out what our role in the universe is and sort of assuming that we do have a role, mm. you know, not just on Earth, but actually in the cosmos mm-hmm. itself. Any planet's a good enough planet. Yeah, yeah, yeah. right. And yeah. so... Um, you know that that's kind of where these stories start from is to say that that the the religions the traditional religions haven't they're no longer able to answer those questions hmm. um, in a way that's that's functional in the modern world because they're not they don't give scientific answers the answers that they t- that they give us or that you know um, that that were the the center of the earth that you know that were chosen by God that sort of thing and that this is dysfunctional. Mm-hmm. So we need a new story. The argument right. is that um, starts from the Big Bang, takes us up to the present, and you know along the way tells us how we fit into the cosmos and what our role is and what's unique about the human. Mm-hmm. So what what he, what von Braun is saying there is you know not any anything new, mm-hmm. um, and people 
not just von Braun, before von Braun have been saying these kinds of things for a long time. Mm-hmm. Well, it, it is a, it is fascinating. Um, it's, again, not, not new, as you say. Uh, hubris is a common uh, human element, I suppose. Uh, it, it is uh, one of the things that's interesting in terms of understanding it in a religious context, right? The the stories have answers. Uh, God is the answer generally, right? It's it's the last thing you need to know, the first thing you need to know, the Alpha and the Omega of your story. Um, the Big Bang is not an Alpha. It's a wished-for Alpha in some sense, right? But we always ask that question, what came before? Well, I mean, they would say, the, the storytellers would say that um, because when we discovered that there was a beginning to the universe, that makes it a storied universe. Mm. If it has a mm. beginning, you know, it's got like a middle that. and an mm, end. Sure. It, be, it becomes a narrative at that point. Mm. A linear one. Yeah, it is very linear, mm-hmm. actually. Mm-hmm. That's the important, that is important, right? Yeah. Uh, it, it, it moves it out of, t- out of the sort of cyclical time of many other mythic characterizations of life. And it's, it's linear, its linearity is part of its progressiveness, mm. you know, that, that humans evolved, you know, that there's, a, there's an inherent um, increasing complexity to mm-hmm. the universe and consciousness. Mm-hmm. And so it has its kind of, you know, culmination in the human who is the, sure. the, the conscious, self-reflective, it's the universe reflecting mm-hmm. on mm-hmm. itself. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's our role in the universe. <laughs> right, right. Uh, this is Interchange on WFHB. I'm speaking with Lisa Sedaris, author of Consecrating Science. It sets out to debunk the myths behind what is known collectively as the new cosmology, a worldview claiming to bring science and spirituality together. Uh, we're talking about stories, narratives, and, and how uh, these things are being written in a kind of religious, a religious fashion, using a mythopoic, I guess, language, um, mm-hmm. uh, to try to make stories for. I, I, I don't know, Lisa. Do you th- do you think these are stories for the unwashed? Uh, stories for like who who benefits from myth? Myth is one of those things that you have to tell people who don't quite understand the world. It seems like to me, or don't don't quite won't understand the science, even though we can sing songs about mitochondria. Right, and well, if you, I think the idea is that if you take the science and you you put it into this kind of accessible form that's mythic and you embellish it with all of the sort of accoutrements of, of, of religion, poetry, you know, even in some cases ritual, it will fulfill those functions mm-hmm. of religion. Mm-hmm. Um, for people who already have a religion, I think mm-hmm. um, proponents of this story are a little unclear mm-hmm. on, on whether they're saying you need to actually swap out the story that you have for right. the new one. It's like um, a mad lib. We can just write in some other. Right. Uh, yeah, yeah. Right. Hey, uh, uh, let's listen to that Carl, a little bit at least of a, a Carl Sagan symphony, symphony of Science uh, song. I'm not very good at uh, singing songs, but uh, here's here's a try. If you wish to make an apple pie from scratch, you must first the universe. Space is filled with a network of wormholes. You might emerge somewhere else in space. Some win out in time. The sky calls to us. If we do not destroy ourselves, we will one day venture to the stars. I really had enough of that. Sorry. Um, <laughs> That's featuring uh, Stephen Hawking as well, I believe. Uh, maybe the one. Yeah, the guy part. who does these the Symphony of Science videos. There's a whole bunch of them. They have Richard Dawkins and a lot of scientists sort of doing this auto tune mm. 
taking their words from lectures and turning them into a, a not very um, aesthetically <laughs> appealing kind of music. Well, um, Lisa, is this anything more than just our you know general um, human fear of death? I mean, it's just hard for me to kind of understand the narrative aspect. You know, uh, biblical stories do do this kind of thing as well. Uh, explain your place in the world but as a, an actor in God's narrative as much as anything else. Um, we serve um, that particular narrative. I often just don't quite understand thinking about the human as outside of nature, which is what von Braun said as well. Mm -hmm. uh, this, I, the outside, the other uh, is outside of us. Like there's this thing outside of who we are, which is how we get out of bodies, you know, how we, we turn into the singularity. You mm -hmm. know, this is yeah. all the same narrative. How do I get out of this flesh that's going to die? Is there more to it than that? Well, I mean, the thing that's sort of ironic about that is that these stories are, they're meant to make us feel at home in the universe. That's the point, you know, so that we don't feel that we're some otherworldly transcendent creature, but actually we're part of the universe. But the way in which the narrative unfolds, there's a kind of um, turning point in cosmic evolution where where human consciousness and complexity creates it makes us world makers so we remake worlds mm. um or we, we not just destroy this one <laughs> <laughs> well if we destroy this one then we can go to another one and make we can another remake one. <laughs> it, right? so that i mean that's what that's what differentiates us from other species is in part that and von braun says this that we're we're world makers mm -hmm. you know we alter our environment we don't just fit in we change it to suit us. And so we're continuous with nature, but also, you know, this is where we make this break, and that's where technology comes in. And we we eventually create a, a whole new envelope, a, yeah. a new sphere of the Earth, which how is does, the how new does, How does entropy fit, fit into all this? Well, yeah. yeah I'm not I mean, sure how they would yeah. answer that. I, <laughs> I mean, it, it eventually... You know, all of this will wind down. You got to find right? some energy but, somewhere, right? Yeah, yeah, that's right. Okay, well, I think that's that's one of the the undercut uh, ideas, right? You 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 are running down. These are d destructive tendencies as much as anything else. Maybe that's the impulse to 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 make some technology that magically makes energy in some way, mm -hmm. right? Uh, yeah. That's how it seems to me. Anyway, uh, well, let's take another break. This uh, this is John Saw That Number by Nico Case oh, off of her fantastic 2006 album Fox Confessor Brings the Flood. More on the problematically upbeat narrative of the Anthropocene when Interchange returns with Lisa Sedaris. His meat was locust and honey This is listener-supported WFHB, Bloomington, Bedford, Ellettsville, Nashville. Community radio for South Central Indiana. Online at WFHB.org. Currently it's 26 degrees, cold, clear outside. Tonight mostly clear with a low around 17. Winds could gust as high as 18 miles an hour. Wednesday partly sunny with a high near 42. Uh, windy with uh, gusts as high as 33 miles an hour. Wednesday night, a slight chance of rain and snow showers before 11 p.m. Then a slight chance of snow showers until 1 a.m. Mostly cloudy, 
low around 24. Then Thursday, partly sunny, high near 32. Uh, calmer winds and a low around 22. Stay tuned for more interchange in a minute. Welcome back to Interchange. I'm Doug Storm. Our show today is the new cosmology or upbeat in the Anthropocene. And our guest is Lisa Sedaris, author of Consecrating Science. Uh, we're going to listen to another bit of Von Braun here, and then we're going to talk a little bit about what the Anthropocene means. Uh, obviously, it may be a little bit about miracle because that's confusing also. So this time, Von Braun on astronomy, the queen of sciences. I like that. And abstruse things. Whereas most animals follow for their survival certain telltale scents which are too refined for human perception, man seems to be uniquely equipped to perceive certain vibrations emanating from the celestial environment. As a result, astronomy is the oldest science that existed for thousands of years even as the only science and is today considered the queen of the sciences. Although man lacks the eyes of the night owl, the scent of the fox, or the hearing of the deer, he has an uncanny ability to learn about abstruse things like the motions of the planets, the cradle to grave cycle of the stars, and the distance between galaxies. Whereas all other species 
seem resigned to the environment into which they have been born, man clearly does not. Since his early beginnings, he has wanted to fly, although he was not born with wings, and today he does fly. What is man's motivation? Why does he always want to explore what is outside his abode? Why is he so eager to pioneer activities beyond the natural endowments? Again, that's Werner von Braun, and we'll find out what he thinks, why he thinks man is so eager to do these things. He's going to tell us after the next break. You have to wait around for that one. Again, Lisa Sedaris is in the studio. Her book's Consecrating uh, Science, Wonder, Knowledge, and the Natural World. Uh, We went to the break uh, mentioning the Anthropocene, and that's a concept that has now, um, I guess, taken over. Mm. Uh, in our understanding of what it means to be man or human in this human world or human in this inhuman world or something of that nature, right? So what, what in the world is the Anthropocene? So the Anthropocene is the idea that, that we're now in a new geological epoch where humans have become the dominant force on the planet um, to the extent of being like a geological force. Um, and you, evidence of that is things like changing, you know, our, our, the chemistry of our atmosphere, climate change, and acidification of the oceans, just huge, unprecedented impacts on the planet. Um, but to call it the Anthropocene, of course, puts humans sort of at center stage right. again. And that's, that's the thing that especially a lot of humanists have begun to, to question and critique, you know, is this the right way to think of what's going on? Um, are we congratulating ourselves or is this a warning? You know, what, how mm-hmm. are we supposed to take this kind of, you know, handed down from scientists that were, <laughs> were essentially living in some new age? Yeah, it's, it's uh, we could har- go back to the beginning where, where Nietzsche says, you know, and then and then the, the nature laughed and they all died. Right. So, I mean, in a way, it makes us very insignificant because here we are kind of putting ourselves out of existence mm-hmm. in this big cosmic story. But um, if we can sort of muster the um, the innovation and the technology to to take advantage of this new position where you know we're the drivers of evolution, then we can create this bright new future. And mm-hmm. so that's what some people call the the good Anthropocene, <laughs> as opposed to the bad Anthropocene, which you know, as if those are the only choices those that we have. Funny, yeah. Maybe just no Anthropocene. Would be yeah, a good thing, maybe. But. You know, it's, uh, trying to think about what what it means to be a world maker, what it means to change one's environment. Uh, again, uh, these are things that that happen in nature also right so if uh, right. if there are too many deer for mm-hmm. for example in the area and uh, uh, then sometimes there's disease sometimes the a predator shows up and, and takes care of things so nature itself has this sense uh, a sense I'm, I don't want to make it a, a, a thinking well maybe I do um, but this this is not unusual for creatures to affect their environment and right. wholesale changes happen and, and because a of that. lot of people make exactly that point and, and and we'll look at, you know, beavers, for example. Mm-hmm. They, I mean, they really, not only do they make their own places that they live in, but they completely change the environments yeah. where they, mm-hmm. yeah. And so, again, there's a sort of continuity with other species, but at the same time, um, you know, the human is able to move outside of its limits. So, I mean, as you were saying about the deer, I mean, typically mm-hmm. what happens when species, you know, overshoot their, you know, overshoot, that's yeah, another concept. Right. Then they, right. There's, yeah. there's some, pushback from nature, mm-hmm. but humans are unique in that we can transcend limits, which mm. is what, right, Von Braun's right, saying sure. when he talks about leaving the planet behind and going to the stars. Well, we did leave the planet. This is part of the issue. This is yeah. the whole, like, impetus for it, right? We actually left the right. planet. Yeah. Otherwise, I don't know if we'd have that 
that same drive, right? Yeah, and that's that. This is this very interesting pivotal moment of seeing, you know, the Earth from space, mm-hmm, where on the one hand, it's like people say this, you know, launch the environmental movement. Neil mm. deGrasse Tyson's very fond of saying mm. this. Um, but it's also the moment where we realize, oh, actually our destiny is sort of in the stars. Mm. And so there's that constant tension between, mm. you know, the environmental impulse of um, this beautiful blue marble and, oh, you know, we're a species that's destined to go to the stars. Mm. And, and that's, um, we'll never be kind of fulfilled until mm. we leave this planet behind. But it, it sort of smacks, uh, I guess it's in line with the, even the Dominion Doctrine, right, where it's for right. use and you well, mo- and use and move on. When astronauts right. went into space, they, they read from Genesis. Mm, right? What a great story. <laughs> yeah. You know, yeah. so is, are, were they extending right. their Dominion or were they sort of humbling themselves and thanking God for, you know, allowing them to make that journey? You know, did, it, did you think they were doing that? They didn't seem too humble, maybe. Yeah, I mean, there's yeah. some other really interesting stories about how how thoroughly Christian mm-hmm. NASA has been in its mm. history, and oh, really? um, mm. von Braun was part of that. You know, he converted to After Christianity. After he was a Nazi became, soldier. Or? Yeah, he became a, mm-hmm. a very hardcore Christian, and it's convenient saw and saw you know mm-hmm. humans' destiny to go into the to the stars and to, to Mars and the moon and everything is part of sort of the, the will of God. Mm. Now, we, I think we've used the term a few times, epic science, and, and, and uh, uh, Bill Gates has a big history project and, mm-hmm. uh, and the attempt to and, um, you know, educate uh, students and as well as the public. There's a free public uh, course for epic history, and, and it's, it's laid out in a way that this is what happened. This is what's happening. This yeah. is, we know all this. This is next. It's, there's no there's no question about anything in, in these particular stories. Well, I mean there? that's kind of that's kind of how it seems. I mean mm-hmm. you can you can see David Christian do his big history thing in under 20 minutes. The in TED, a TED a talk, TED talk. Right. <laughs> right. So it doesn't leave right. a lot of room for sort of you right. know nuance and <laughs> debate about. That's so, all you need to know. So right. yeah, there's the need to have these stories. It, it's sort of different for David Christian. It's not so much an environmental kind of impulse mm. for him. He's you know that may be part of it. It's more that we are living in this kind of, um, we don't, we have a, we've lost our purpose, our mm. sense of where we belong. And, you know, when students go to school, they learn a little bit of this and a little bit of that, and mm-hmm. they don't get this whole integrated story. And so they mm-hmm. don't know how to think about who they are. For some of the people that I write about in my book, and I just mentioned Christian a few mm-hmm. times, but their goal is really to use these big stories to shift us back towards an intimate connect- connection with nature, mm. which is ironic in a sense, because as our conversation keeps <laughs> leading to, it, it, these are stories that kind of take us away from Earth and talk about the human as being, mm-hmm. uh, uh, you know, universe creatures, not Earthlings, but worldlings, mm-hmm. you know, we, our destiny is not here. Right. Yeah, it's, it's a, a very science fiction uh, fantasy kind of thing. I think one of the... Um, one of the people that, that you and I have talked about, Adam Frank, mentions uh, Kim Stanley Robinson in some mm-hmm. of his work. A, yeah. He is a science fiction writer. Uh, and that people are planetary expressions. Uh, the actual things we're right. doing are planetary yeah. expressions. This, this whole planetary, this move, you know, and, and yeah. to talk about the planetary is to, to take this completely different perspective, to sort of see our planet as a planet. That is, that there are other planets out there. With and, their own characters and personalities. And, and there <laughs> are these stages of... <laughs> cosmic evolution hey, and you know who am I to know it, Adam Frank who mm. you mentioned physicist right? yeah he's a physicist yeah. says that you know seen from the sort of cosmic astrobiological context 
seen from a computer model. Right, because we don't yeah. actually... Uh, yeah, these are the things that also make me crazy. This where is are we getting this model. view from, right? right. right. Um, you know, that what, what we're doing, the Anthropocene, our, our catastrophic, you know, um, phase of our planet is just something that planets do, yeah. It's just how we roll, I think yeah, he says. that's what he says. Right. It's how we roll. <laughs> it's just how we roll. <laughs> I like it. Hey, you're going to just uh, fess up to it, right? It's just what we do. Right. Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, so the the thing that w- what struck me, too, in the, in the Von Braun is the idea that he does uh, acknowledge our weaknesses. Mm-hmm. He, I mean, he, he says... Um, we're not, we don't have the refined sense, but we, we have this weird, abstruse, celestial tuning. It's mm-hmm. an, another way in which yeah. we become almost angels in von Braun's terminology. Right. We're not, we're not creatures of the body so mm. much, I think. It's partly, the senses is the are split, not sharpened right? yeah. in us. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. That's right. This yeah. is the split that we need to live in the head or live out of the head. Even mm-hmm. the head is a bunch of electromagnetic impulses anyway, right? So we're just going to zoom in. This was uh, that terrible movie with Jodie Foster. Maybe everybody likes this movie. I'm <laughs> Contact. sorry. Contact. <laughs> like Maybe it's movie. a great movie. No, sorry. Uh, it's Matthew McConaughey, too, which he kind of gives me the willies. <laughs> yeah. So, um, uh, but it does have Tom Skerritt, right? He's pretty good. Mm-hmm. Um, anyway, well. in that movie, there's like giant energy everywhere talking to them and so this is that part movie, of it, right? I show I show some scenes from that film in my mm, class mm-hmm. to make just this point about how the you know the the longing for cosmic contact is mm. this kind of personal quest I mean for Jodie Foster in the movie she's yeah. trying to find her father again yeah, yeah. the aliens appear in the form of her father yeah. so it's you know it's this godlike it's a metaphysic too right yeah, yeah. You, you'll, you'll, yeah. you'll meet your loved ones again in the in the electric sphere or whatever and, the, and people who write about astrobiology um, and astrotheology as they call it I mean aliens are essentially playing the role of God in this mm. vision because they're, they're a superior intelligence. If we make contact with another civilization, they will always be superior to us, you know, technologically. They are evolutionarily beyond yeah. us. Yeah. Mm. And they will have survived, Carl Sagan hints at this in that weird little song mm. that you played, they will have made it through that bottleneck of self-destruction, of atomic oh. mm. war, sort of learned how to deal with their atomic and self-destructive powers. Mm. And so they'll be benign. So they're superior really entities nice. who are sort of peaceful <laughs> and benign. And I didn't see that us. movie. I think they're yeah. all like eating us. I'm confused. Which aliens are you, are you talking not about? Not in contact. Oh, no, not in lots contact. Of other, I mean, yeah. lots of war other of the Worlds movie. Yeah. Well, yeah, that's yeah. the other kind of alien. Yeah, they're <laughs> scary. Yeah. Well, uh, it's time for our last break. This is Back to the Sea by the Thermals off of The Body, the Blood, and the Machine. What will Werner von Braun say next? Find out when we come back with guest Lisa Sedaris for more on Interchange. for WFHB comes from Needmore Coffee Roasters, a woman-owned coffee bar and roastery dedicated to roasting organic, direct trade, and fair trade coffee from small-scale farmers around the world. Located on Bloomington's east side at 104 North Pete Ellis Drive on the corner of Pete Ellis and Longview. More information is available online at needmoreroasters.com. And support for WFHB comes from the Uptown Cafe, established in 1976, located at 102 East Kirkwood Avenue, 
serving breakfast, lunch, and dinner, as well as wine, beer, spirits, and cocktails. More information is available online at the-uptowncafe.com. Welcome back to Interchange on WFHB. I'm Doug Storm. Once again, today's show is the new cosmology or epic science or big history or religion 2.0. I'm joined in the studio by Lisa Sedaris, Associate Professor of Religious Studies at Indiana University. She's also the author of Consecrating Science. As promised, one last snippet of Dr. Rocket, Werner von Braun, from the lectern at Taylor University in Upland, Indiana in 1972. I think the mainspring of science is curiosity. But also, there would not be a single great accomplishment in the history of mankind without faith. Any man who strives to accomplish something needs a degree of faith in himself. And whenever he takes on a challenge that requires more moral strength than he can muster with his own limited mental and spiritual resources, and he needs faith in God. But many people find that churches 
through those ramparts of faith badly battered by the onslaught of 300 years of scientific skepticism. And this has led many to believe that science and religion are not compatible, that knowing and believing cannot live side by side. I believe that nothing could be further from the truth. Science and religion are not antagonists. On the contrary, they are sisters. While science tries to learn more about the creation, religion tries to better understand the creator. While through science, man tries to harness the forces of nature around him, through religion, he tries to harness the force of nature within him. Again, Werner Ron Braun telling us how it is. Uh, I like that in the other clip we named astro- astronomy the queen, and here science and religion are sisters. These are all women mm. in this very masculine <laughs> conception, right? Yeah, that's interesting. That's pretty interesting. You know what, uh, uh, Lisa, your book is uh, it centers on wonder. We haven't talked a lot about wonder, uh, uh, but von Braun uses curiosity mm-hmm. there, and I think these are two very distinct things. It'd be interesting to think of curiosity as science and maybe humanities as wonder in some sense or see them in those right. ways. I think, I mean, I think the forms of wonder that I'm, that I'm writing about and critiquing in this book are, are really much more like curiosity. Curiosity is, is more of the the urge to solve a puzzle so that, you know, once you've got the solution, you know, the, the wonder goes away. It's this sort of self-eradicating thing. Mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. curiosity can have this sort of successive quality of you solve one puzzle, puzzle you move on to the next puzzle. Mm-hmm. Wonder is, at least as I'm <laughs> defining it, as a, as a kind of moral sensibility mm. and, not, and not just like a drug um, right. is something that, that is sustained over time. Mm. You know, What's it's a, a quality moral, what, of, How is it moral? Well, so uh, when when one wonders at science itself or at knowledge, then then it gives you a sense of um, an inordinate sense of control over mm-hmm. the world. Um, it, it lessens your your sense that there's um, a need for caution to move slowly to try to anticipate you know unintended consequences as much as you can. Um, wonder, I think, true wonder carries with it a sense that that there, there's a difference between explaining something and, and sort of experiencing mm-hmm. life, experiencing the world. Mm-hmm. Um, that when we've explained something, you know, we haven't, we haven't driven that out of our lives altogether. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think Rachel Carson mm-hmm. is very good at sort of holding mystery and reality together, is that, the, that reality is a mystery, mm-hmm. you know. Um, yeah, explanations yeah. we kind of put, put aside. We're done with it. Right. right, and yeah. you know, if that's if that's what wonder is about, mm-hmm. then then wonder just removes itself, mm-hmm. you know, progressively. Mm-hmm. But I like you bring Rachel Carson up. Uh, obviously, you've done a lot of work on Rachel Carson and thought a lot about her as well. Obviously, Silent Spring is a fantastic book, well written book. It's uh, literature as much as anything else, um, mm-hmm. a fable of its own, as it starts out with a fable, and uh, the the idea of how one manages the eco the ecology, the ecosystem, the world as this human who is destroying its environment, mm-hmm. right? So we acknowledge we can't start over or, uh, you know, after that catastrophe that happens and we have to start over, maybe there's some difference. But to acknowledge we're in the middle of this problem, in the middle of technology, in the middle of the Koch brothers and they're buying science and selling science or doing whatever they need to do to make more money, um, we have to 
still have to think about how we manipulate science, right? How we manage the world. And it still requires the human hand because it's going to keep using itself anyway, (laughs) right? Mm -hmm. The hand is going to keep using what it can. So the idea is what we do have to have some some way to, um, uh, I guess, if those of us who are um, understanding wonder this way, understanding science as having a capacity to make a difference for the better, um, I'll get, get, I think get wrapped up in this story, right? We mm-hmm. get sucked into it. We, mm-hmm. get, we want there to be a better world. We want science to be able to do these things. We want to no longer have to worry about global warming. We want there to be answers, right? Right. But if, I mean, if we, if we get stuck in the cycle of sort of techno-fixing our way out of our problems, I mean, the, one of the concerns is that we never experience any conversion, <laughs> any change in our behavior, any sense that, um, you know, it's precisely these same behaviors and these technologies that got us to this point in the first place. Right. So the behaviors are the problem. How do we, So we need to psychologize ourselves at some mm-hmm. point, right? We need to go into therapy and stop doing what we're doing. Well, I, I think humans are much more, and I think particularly Americans. Are we, more, I've been using the we again, and we yeah, talked about it at the right. break. And yeah, and I yeah. said humans. So. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't say species, Not all but of I us uh, are do this, right? Um, yeah. <laughs> I think there's, I mean, you see this in, in the way that we respond to environmental problems. For example, we, you know, we move very quickly to thinking about, like, geoengineering the climate right. rather than actually just cutting back on fossil fuels right. or... You know, the impulse is to find a diet pill or to get, right. you know, surgery or something for weight loss rather than right. rather than to actually restrain ourselves. So the yeah. idea that we what we need right now is to learn to live within limits mm-hmm. and to, um, you know, kind of some sort of self enforced restraint. These are problematic, right? Yeah. Because the, you, you are requiring a story to be told also. You yeah. Know, you have to teach the world to be a different way, not just to teach, uh, you know, how to drink a Coke or whatever that, that song right. is. Right. Well, but I think, you know, some of some of the proponents of wonder that I'm that I'm more drawn to, I mean, I think that they they understand that that wonder is is perceived through a life that and meaning is perceived through a life that involves limits, mm-hmm. that the limitlessness is hell. Mm. You know, uh, humans can't live in a world without limits. And mm-hmm. I think that's what you know, if you want to call it the Anthropocene or whatever, right. that's what we're doing. Yeah, and you talked about this before, and we've talked about it as well. That this is not uh, uh, this is not we. This is not all humans. The, you know, the we are operating within a system that mm-hmm. we participate in, but generally, ninety five percent of the world probably has no hand in any of this action. Right? right, and so when you hear this kind of rhetoric that you you hear in von Braun and all kinds of places and Anthropocene narratives, it's all about the species. The human species does mm-hmm. this. The human species does that. You know, this is our propensity, um, and and that species thinking is somehow supposed to bring with it like solidarity, but mm-hmm. it just skips right to that kind of collective we without recognizing that. That problems like climate change are not caused by all of us. They're caused by some of us, you know, in the West or in the industrialized world. In fact, at the expense of other people in the world. So there's also, I think, a lot of issues of of social and environmental justice in in these narratives that they just gloss over those Mm. concerns about about justice and, and, and use this homogenizing language. Yeah, that's not epic, Lisa. (laughs) <laughs> well, it doesn't, it's not as much fun, I guess. No, well, in <laughs> epics, there are lots of people that die. 
Right. And I guess that's going to happen as mm-hmm. well. Yeah. Yeah. There's a hero and lots of people die. Yeah. Uh, well, that's our show. It's a positive note to end on. Uh, we'll close with Oceania from Bjork. Uh, again, thanks to our guest, Lisa Sedaris, Associate Professor of Religious Studies at Indiana University, author of Environmental Ethics, Ecolo- Ecological Theology, and Natural Selection, and her new book, Consecrating Science, Wonder, Knowledge, and the Natural World, published this year by University of California Press. Thank you, Lisa. Thank you. Next time on Interchange, Hidden in Plain Sights. Brothers Alex and Andrew Lichtenstein, one a historian, the other a photographer, join us to talk about their new book, Marked, Unmarked, Remembered, A Geography of American Memory. It's an attempt to complicate and deepen the conversation revolving around how monuments mask and idealize much that is deplorable, while also calling attention to what's missing in our local and national memory. That is their attempt to locate, to make a place for what has been lost in American history. Hidden in plain sights, next time on Interchange, Tuesdays at 5.30 on WFHB. I'm Doug Storm. Thanks for listening. I produce Interchange. Rob Schoon is assistant producer, and tonight, our studio engineer as well. Thank you, Rob. Our executive producer is Wes Martin. Stay tuned for Counterspin, followed by the Jazz Menagerie, coming up next on your community radio station, WFHB. Sweat is so <laughs>